This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Robert Browning by G. K. Chesterton. Section 13. Chapter 4. Browning in Italy. Part 3. Robert Browning was unquestionably a thoroughly conventional man. There are many who think this element of conventionality altogether regrettable and disgraceful. They have established, as it were, a convention of the unconventional. But this hatred of the conventional element in the personality of a poet is only possible to those who do not remember the meaning of words. Convention means only a coming together, an agreement and as every poet must base his work upon an emotional agreement among men, so every poet must base his work upon a convention. Every art is, of course, based on a convention, an agreement between the speaker and the listener that certain objections shall not be raised. The most realistic art in the world is open to realistic objection. Against the most exact and everyday drama that ever came out of Norway, it is still possible for the realist to raise the objection that the hero who starts a subject and drops it, who runs out of a room and runs back again for his hat, is all the time behaving in a most eccentric manner, considering that he is doing these things in a room in which one of the four walls has been taken clean away and had been replaced by a line of footlights and a mob of strangers. Against the most accurate black and white artist that human imagination can conceive, it is still to be admitted that he draws a black line round a man's nose, and that that line is a lie. And in precisely the same fashion, a poet must, by the nature of things, be conventional. Unless he is describing an emotion which others share with him, his labors will be utterly in vain. If a poet really had an original emotion, if, for example, a poet suddenly fell in love with the buffers of a railway train, it would take him considerably more time than his allotted threescore years and ten to communicate his feelings. Poetry deals with primal and conventional things. The hunger for bread, the love of a woman, the love of children, the desire for immortal life. If men really had new sentiments, poetry could not deal with them. If, let us say, a man did not feel a bitter craving to eat bread, but did by way of substitute feel a fresh original craving to eat brass fenders or mahogany tables, poetry could not express him. If a man, instead of falling in love with a woman, fell in love with a fossil or a sea anemone, poetry could not express him. Poetry can only express what is original in one sense, the sense in which we speak of original sin. It is original not in the paltry sense of being new, but in the deeper sense of being old. It is original in the sense that it deals with origins. All artists who have any experience of the arts will agree so far that a poet is bound to be conventional with regard to matters of art. Unfortunately, however, they are the very people who cannot, as a general rule, see that a poet is also bound to be conventional in matters of conduct. It is only the smaller poet who sees the poetry of revolt, of isolation, of disagreement. The larger poet sees the poetry of those great agreements which constitute the romantic achievement of civilization. 
just as an agreement between the dramatist and the audience is necessary to every play just as an agreement between the painter and the spectators is necessary to every picture so an agreement is necessary to produce the worship of any of the great figures of mortality the hero the saint the average man the gentleman browning had it must be thoroughly realized a real pleasure in these great agreements these great conventions he delighted with a true poetic delight in being conventional being by birth an englishman he took pleasure in being an englishman being by rank a member of the middle class he took pride in its ancient scruples and its everlasting boundaries he was everything that he was with a definite and conscious pleasure a man a liberal an englishman an author a gentleman a lover a married man this must always be remembered as a general characteristic of browning this ardent and headlong conventionality he exhibited it preeminently in the affair of his elopement and marriage during and after the escape of himself and his wife to italy he seems to have forgotten everything except the splendid worry of being married he showed a thoroughly healthy consciousness that he was taking up a responsibility which had its practical side he came finally and entirely out of his dreams since he had himself enough money to live on he had never thought of himself as doing anything but writing poetry poetry indeed was probably simmering and bubbling in his head day and night but when the problem of the elopement arose he threw himself with an energy of which it is pleasant to read into every kind of scheme for solidifying his position he wrote to mockton milnes and would appear to have badgered him with applications for a post in the british museum i will work like a horse he said with that boyish note which whenever in his unconsciousness he strikes it is more poetical than all his poems all his language in this matter is emphatic he would be glad and proud he says to have any minor post his friend could obtain for him he offered to read for the bar and probably began doing so but all this rigorous and very creditable materialism was ruthlessly extinguished by elizabeth barrett she declined altogether even to entertain the idea of her husband devoting himself to anything else at the expense of poetry probably she was right and browning was wrong but it was an error which every man would desire to have made one of the qualities again which make browning most charming is the fact that he felt and expressed so simple and genuine a satisfaction about his own achievements as a lover and husband particularly in relation to his triumph in the hygienic care of his wife if he is vain of anything writes mrs browning it is of my restored health later she adds with admirable humour and suggestiveness and i have to tell him that he really must not go on telling everybody how his wife walked here with him or walked there with him as if a wife with two feet were a miracle in nature when a lady in italy said on an occasion when browning stayed behind with his wife on the day of a picnic that he was the only man who behaved like a christian to his wife browning was elated to an almost infantile degree but there could scarcely be a better test of the essential manliness and decency of the man than this test of his vanities browning boasted of being domesticated there are half a hundred men everywhere who would be inclined to boast of not being domesticated bad men are almost without exception conceited 
but they are commonly conceited of their defects. One picturesque figure who plays a part in this portion of the Browning's life in Italy is Walter Savage Lander. Browning found him living with some of his wife's relations and engaged in a continuous and furious quarrel with them, which was indeed not uncommonly the condition of that remarkable man when living with other human beings. He had the double arrogance which is only possible to that old and stately but almost extinct blend, the aristocratic Republican. Like an old Roman senator, or like a gentleman of the southern states of America, he had the condescension of a gentleman to those below him, combined with the jealous self-assertiveness of a Jacobin to those above. The only person who appeared to have been able to manage him and bring out his more agreeable side was Browning. It is, by the way, one of the many hints of a certain element in Browning which can only be described by the elementary and old-fashioned word goodness, that he always contrived to make himself acceptable and even lovable to men of savage and capricious temperament, of detached and erratic genius, who could get on with no one else. Carlyle, who could not get a bitter taste off his tongue in talking of most of his contemporaries, was fond of Browning. Lander, who could hardly conduct an ordinary business interview without beginning to break the furniture, was fond of Browning. These are the things which speak more for a man than many people will understand. It is easy enough to be agreeable to a circle of admirers, especially feminine admirers, who have a peculiar talent for discipleship and the absorption of ideas. But when a man is loved by other men of his own intellectual stature and of a wholly different type and order of eminence, we may be certain that there was something genuine about him, and something far more important than anything intellectual. Men do not like another man because he is a genius, least of all when they happen to be geniuses themselves. This general truth about Browning is like hearing of a woman who is the most famous beauty in a city and who is at the same time adored and confided in by all the women who live there. Browning came to the rescue of the fiery old gentleman, and helped by Seymour Kirkup, put him under very definite obligations by a course of very generous conduct. He was fully repaid in his own mind for his trouble by the mere presence and friendship of Lander, for whose quaint and volcanic personality he had a vast admiration, compounded of the pleasure of the artist, in an oddity, and of the man, in a hero. It is somewhat amusing and characteristic that Mrs. Browning did not share this unlimited enjoyment of the company of Mr. Lander, and expressed her feelings in her own humorous manner. She writes, Dear darling Robert amuses me by talking of his gentleness and sweetness. A most courteous and refined gentleman he is, of course, and very affectionate to Robert, as he ought to be, but of self-restraint he has not a grain, and of suspicion many grains. What do you really say to dashing down a plate on the floor when you don't like what's on it? Robert succeeded in soothing him, and the poor old lion is very quiet on the whole, roaring softly to beguile the time in Latin alcaics against his wife and Louis Napoleon. One event alone could really end this endless life of the Italian Arcadia. That event happened on June 29, 1861. Robert Browning's wife died, stricken by the death of her sister, and almost as hard, it is a characteristic touch, 
by the death of Cavour, she died alone in the room with Browning, and of what passed then, though much has been said, little should be. He, closing the door of that room behind him, closed the door in himself, and none ever saw Browning upon earth again, but only a splendid surface. End of section 13 End of chapter 4